Welcome to the third episode of Yorkshire Housing's Raising the Roof podcast. I'm your host, Nick Atkin, Chief Exec here at Yorkshire Housing. And today's topic is on disruption and digital, the two Ds of housing. And my two guests today to cover disruption and digital are probably quite well known to you. The first will be particularly well known to you, Ian Wright. He's the chief exec at the Disruptive Innovators Network. He is so disruptive that he was so frustrated by the housing sector that he decided to step away from a a secure, well-paid role and set up his own business to poke the tiger that is the housing sector into change. He's worked in social housing despite, for those of you who obviously can't see on a podcast, his youthful good looks, despite that, and despite the, the hair restorer that he's used for many years, he's worked in housing for 30 years. So he understands the housing sector and he's really well known for both the, the commercial side of, of housing and, and developing those relationships with businesses outside the sector. But he's also spent a lot of time focusing inside the sector and knows and has has the the phone book to die for in terms of the contacts that he, that he has access to not many people answer the calls but he has the, has the phone numbers nevertheless his claim to fame is that he used to be the area housing manager for tony blair and has kissed sherry blair his wife ian how was that was that was that a great experience was that the highlight of your life um, well, it, it, she was actually sort of leaving the counting hall as she went past, uh, having successfully been uh, re-elected, or husband be re-elected back into the uh, uh, into number ten. So I don't know whether she was expecting or not, but you know, the, you know, who dares wins is what I say. So she won't remember me, I don't think. I don't think it was that good. <laughs> and um, for those of you who um, don't know the the Disruptive Innovators Network. It, It's a membership network primarily aimed at housing organisations who are thinking or investing in innovation and and have a real passion for thinking and and doing things differently. But what Ian brings is that knowledge and that experience from some of the biggest brands in in the world, such as Amazon and Microsoft, Google and Apple. And that's why I'm even for today wearing my my Apple T-shirt. So just in homage to to Ian and and his experience. My second guest today is uh, equally impressive. He's uh, Steve Thorby Coy, uh, and he's our head of ICT here at Yorkshire Housing. He's been on the Yorkshire Housing team for for the last couple of years and has worked in social housing for the last five years. But he's worked in tech and has enabled change across a range of sectors for over 20 years. Again, yet more youthful good looks on today's <laughs> podcast that belie the, the, the depth and breadth of experience that he brings. The reason that Steve's with us is that he lives um, in my hometown of Doncaster. So it's the prerequisite for, for joining the business, although I still can't get him to agree to, to come and watch Donny Rovers with me. Steve's been working hard over the last couple of years, building the foundations here at Yorkshire Housing. And that's also enabled us to, to start thinking very differently about how we deliver our business. And some of you will have already listened, I hope, to earlier podcasts where we've talked about the future of work and Steve and his team have have very much provided the the foundation for that. Prior to joining Yorkshire Housing, Steve has has delivered a range of of award-winning innovative tech projects in the charity sector. So he absolutely gets the the whole innovation piece. So they're my two guests today. Um, And um, I hope you can see it's going to be uh, pretty much a, a lively debate and uh, one which will stretch the thinking um, and parameters of, of of where we want to go. So 
Um, I suppose my first question, just to kick us off, Ian, as a bit of a start of 10, I'm going to come to you. You know, it's been a really, really tough sort of 15, 16 months. Um, you know, the Prime Minister um, is, is looking at, you know, where we go next in terms of the roadmap and, and the lifting of restrictions. Put aside the negativity, you've got to take positives from any difficult situation. And, and you know, the last 16 months have definitely been that. So from your perspective, Ian, you know, what's what's been the best thing that's come out of this? Oh, gosh, uh, I could probably name quite a few, uh, Nick. I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind is obviously Greg signing the uh, deal with Just Eat. Um, that's been a, a personal highlight for me. But if you're talking about it from the uh, the network's perspective, I, I suppose the things that we found out were actually um, during lockdown, you've actually been able to reach more people. Uh, and I think that's been quite key to, to this. You know, you normally thought actually when you, you're going out, you were meeting lots of people face to face. But actually, in this digital online environment now, certainly from our perspective, we've been able to reach a lot more housing leaders through that. And I think that's something that from our perspective has, I suppose, surprised us in, in terms of it, it's 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 um, led to, you know, exponential growth in people who want to do things differently. And I think, you know, the other point that I would probably make is that COVID has probably given more housing leaders uh, as blank a sheet of paper as, as you, you could ask for in terms of being able to sit back and say, right, okay, you know, how do we reinvent or how do we look at our organisation now so in a post-pandemic world we can build something better? And I think for me, that's a real positive. We, we, you've got a real chance now, I suppose, to, to scrape some of those barnacles off, off the you know, your, your business hull that might be slowing you down, that might be not contributing to purpose and things like that. And I think that's a really, really positive aspect of what we've got out of the last uh, 15 months or so. Okay, so the, the opportunity has been there. It's been an open goal. Um, have has housing kicked the ball into the back of the net? Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, to sort of you know pick up on the the Euros analogy, I'm not sure whether we would sort of have got to the semi-finals um, with the performance that we've had because again, the housing sort of uh, operating model is one that, as one CEO said to me, um, you know they expected uh, that uh, COVID would have provided a burning platform, which we hear about an awful lot, to to drive some substantive change within the sector. But actually, even after 15 months, it's smouldering at best. And I suppose part of the challenge that we've got is, is, is the systemic operating model that housing organisations operate in. If, you, if, you, if you're not from this sector um, and you look at it, it's absolutely perfect for stability. Um, and it's designed to sort of withstand major, major shocks. And I think it's done that really, really effectively, which is great for... Um, tenants and residents and for, for staff working in the sector it's perhaps less so for driving real substantive innovation or or change around this there are some real bright pockets of, of this that we have seen and we've seen a massive uptake of technological solutions um perhaps not as as as, as i did read one uh, organization early on who'd uh, installed and implemented uh, microsoft teams so had done digital transformation um <laughs> It's perhaps you know a little bit beyond that, but it has wakened uh, the possibility to people that actually we can do more. Um, so, so I think you know it, it's it, it's work in progress, Nick. What about the outside world? You spend a lot of time with with people in you know. I, I joked about your address book, but you know I I am in awe of some of the the people and some of the organisations that that you get into. Yeah, you know, what's what's their view of us? Do they do they 
understand us? Do they get the social purpose stuff? But I suppose more importantly, you know, how easy or otherwise do they find it to work with us? Well, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, a few years back, I took uh, a group of representatives from the likes of Apple and Google um, and a few other tech companies into a, a large, a very, very large housing association. Uh, again, because they were looking at us as a, as a sector to sort of come into. And it was a great day. And the, the association put on a fantastic showcase of what housing organizations do. And when I asked the um, the people who'd been along, you know, what, what did you make of that? Well, the first reaction was, wow, we just didn't realise housing organisations did all of those things. We thought you just rented houses out and actually do all this, this big portfolio. Oh, but your technology is 10 years behind everything else. Um, so there was a real sort of mixture around that. And I think we're now getting to a stage whereby I've always sort of referred to us as a bit of a hidden sector. You know, how do you hide a 28 billion pound a year sector? Um, actually, it's becoming quite visible now. And you've only got to look at yesterday's announcement about uh, John Lewis going to build 10,000 uh, affordable homes. Um, and I recently had a, a conversation with a, with a a big, big investment company whose question to me was, if we were coming in to disrupt the affordable housing sector, how would we go about that? Uh, and it was a, a brilliant, brilliant question um, to sort of debate um, with them. So more and more uh, external organizations are looking at the sector as actually it's quite a safe space. They now realized actually your business model is, is, is pretty good here. And who wouldn't like a business model where you get something like 85% of your income guaranteed, get guaranteed by government, you know, margins on some of your operations of north of sort of 30%, little or no competition. It's a really, really stable environment. And I think the challenge we're going to have going forward is, and, and I've been discussing this with members recently, is how social housing potentially stuck in what Clayton Christensen would call the innovator's dilemma i.e. we've got to the top of the evolutionary tree and anything that we might want to do to, that disrupts that, uh, that operating model is not going to be widely embraced because it, it, it risks undoing that stability. So I think we've got a big, big challenge as a sector as to how do we look at doing some of the things that digital can bring to us? How do we disrupt some of the existing operating practices whilst at the same time maintaining that stability? I agree. And I think I think as well, I think you're dead right, Ian. Housing is a really attractive sector. It's got pretty stable income streams, really good profit margins, as you said. And people always need a roof over their heads, don't, don't they? So that's it's kind of one of those um, you know, sort of necessities of life that we, we need to have. And I think you're right, politically seen as a good thing to invest in housing. And I think that the question about do people want to do business with us? I think business like businesses like to do business business with. Let me start that again. Businesses like to do business with businesses that have got social outcomes that are socially oriented that are non-profits because it looks nice to do work with people that like that. If you're a big, you know, profit making tech company or something like that, it looks really good. Uh, you know, in terms of your social responsibility, if you can be working with people that are, you know, doing something perhaps a bit more for other people, and I think that's. Um, that's a way of being able to attract people into the sector. And then uh, and then when we get people to come and work with us, they then realize that actually we, we do care about the margins. We are really wanting to, to drive you know, real business efficiencies and that's where they can really help us. So, I mean, it's interesting, Steve, you, you're sort of saying that. Bearing in mind, we've, we've got that that sort of eagerness to, to work with us and people getting us. You know, what, what in your views, stopping, stopping the housing sector from from delivering the levels of, of disruption that, that Ian has outlined. And I'm going to come back to Ian in a minute to sort of get a little bit more detail of what it could look like. But 
you know, what, what stops that actually getting over the line? You know, it, as Ian was saying, we we get people, we get some real key players in front of Apple and Google and and and, and others um, and get people really excited and then they leave and sort of go back to the day job. So what's what's getting in the way, Steve? What's stopping that happening? Um, well, lots of things probably, but uh, I think some of it is, for me, is a bit of a, because of the way that we're funded, we have a bit of a tendency to be quite risk averse. And I think Ian sort of talked about it a little bit as well. So we, you know, we worry about what the headlines are going to be in the Yorkshire Post or the Daily Mail and housing associations at the moment are, you know, they're making national news for not dealing with some of the, the absolute basics of offering safe and good quality homes. So it must be a really tough decision for boards to make to invest in something that feels risky or isn't proven in our sector when you can be accused of wasting money and not dealing with you know a damp and mold problem that somebody's had for for years and that's that's the choices that we're having to make a lot of the time isn't it so you know that the regulatory environment the sort of you know we're, we're sort of quasi-public sector we've got a level of scrutiny that i think makes us a bit more risk averse and we like we like sure things you think there's a culture of fail fast fail cheapman or is it is it a huge project and a two-year plan? You know, again, just that whole sort of worry about failure. Where you know, do you got a view where that that sort of stems from? Um, yeah, well, I, I don't see an awful lot of um, you know. It, it's difficult to put money aside, isn't it? I guess to to say right, just let's let's play with this money and see what happens. And, and if we fail, that's okay. So I think that that culture of um, well, what's the return that you're going to get from that investment is is there. Um, it's probably less, you know, to be fair with us at Yorkshire House and we're talking about the right things, but we still have that in our minds to go, you know, how do we turn this into a business case very, very quickly so that we can deliver a return on it? So, you know, and, and I think there's, there's more that we can be doing um, to really think about how do we convince uh, maybe our customers um, think we'll be wasting money on those things if they don't work as well. So there's maybe something we need to do to about that to be improving our culture. So maybe we need to spend a bit more time and effort um, convincing uh, customers to get on board with some of those benefits. They would help us, then they'd become part of our, our our drive to change things differently. You know, changes and innovations have to make more of a direct connection to that customer experience. So, you know, no, nobody cares if we're surveying the roofs using drones, unless it means that their rent is low or their life isn't disrupted by having to have a repair that they, you know, was, was preventable. So, you know, no, nobody really cares that, I mean, I care because I'm, I'm a geek and I love all this sort of stuff, but I, I like to see videos of, you know, robot shelves in Amazon warehouses moving around because that's the sort of thing that I like to look at. But, you know, nobody cares that that's happening in Amazon's warehouses. We just want our shopping to arrive really quickly. And that's the bit, isn't it? But there's something about, you know, bringing people behind the curtain a little bit to show them how we're doing and what we're trying to achieve and why it's important to get people to be kind of, you know it's like brand ambassadors isn't it you know we, we talk about we, we like apple gear so we've become kind of ambassadors for that sort of kit or we like particular um you know banks or whatever because of the way that they work and and that's how we can maybe maybe start to think about it in a, in a bit of a different way okay ian have you got a view on that um yeah i mean the part of the challenge that we've got is that um social housing started as a movement okay it started as a movement to solve some of society's big problems and over the years because of this requirement for stability we've involved we've evolved into big multi-million pound businesses social businesses but still money but and consequently we have all of that baggage that we sort of naturally carry uh, and steve mentioned this about from a regulatory perspective to ensure that we don't fall over 
So there's probably more focus on that. Actually, we don't want to fall over than actually we want to try different things that actually work. And it amazes me. And, and I say as a sector of 20, 20 odd billion pounds, we don't have an R&D function. You know, that function is actually left to individual organizations. So why on earth would you want to take risks with something that uh, as Steve points out? Actually, this is tenants and residents money. So we have to find a different way of doing that because ultimately customers are interested in the outcomes of any innovations or change that you do not the process you go through but they would love to sort of be involved because i think we sometimes make this um uh, this conclusion that actually tenants and residents of social housing don't use the same services that we would do um and i think what what happened during um the, the lockdown was that actually our perceptions have changed so my friend anthony slumbers called this you know people thought they needed shops to go shopping until they realized they didn't and that's because the likes of Tesco's, the likes of Amazon, you know, all of these different companies, you know, are delivering services. And, and as I say, Yorkshire Housing Tenants and Residents are no different to that. So therefore, the expectations are going to change and will have changed during COVID. And if Yorkshire Housing doesn't keep up with what the, 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 the service experience is that's coming on from these other companies, then the gap is only going to grow. And ultimately, you'll be seen as, oh, well, actually, yeah, they're just my landlord. They're nothing like these other companies. And if you look at some of the trends that are emerging um, in, in other sectors, you know, this, this whole point, you remember a few years back, we were all wowed by Amazon Prime or oh, next day delivery, you know, it was fantastic. That's no longer any good. You've now got companies who are doing so basically, you know, within 10 minutes of you ordering something, um, it, it's coming through the door. Delivery slots are no longer, um, you know, the, 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 the order of the day. People want stuff and they want that sort of stuff now. So what is housing going to do to keep up with that? And I think this is part of the, the challenge that we have is how do you build that experimental mode? Because most of digital and most of um, innovation is experimental. And, I, and I, I think probably one of my big frustrations about organizations is that actually they don't treat experiments as experiments. Actually, they're already looking at what the outcome of this is going to be. And uh, quite often, uh, you'll have traditional KPIs. So, you know, we'll put an ROI on this um, uh, in terms of what we're going to get out of this. And suddenly you're in a position whereby anybody who's partaking within these experiments has already got half an eye on what they're going to get measured. Experimentation means you don't understand, you don't know the answer to these things. Yeah. And so therefore you don't know how things are going to turn out. And we've got to change that, that approach and mindset within the sector before people will truly be comfortable. I don't see a lot of fail fast stuff. I hear a lot of talk about it, but um, I don't see a lot of examples around that because ultimately, um, uh, and this might be slightly controversial, but good managers kill innovation. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's, it's something, again, if, if you sort of, you know, looked at um, Claire Christensen's sort of models around this, it's, it's absolutely right, because ultimately, in housing, because of its need for stability, we employ people and train them to actually avoid things going wrong. So, you know, don't let things go wrong because this is catastrophic for the organization. They are measured on success. They're not measured on, on failure. And therefore, uh, anything new that comes in that starts to threaten what they get uh, measured on or what the business has said is important means it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, the biggest way, I was asked the other day, you know, what, what's the best way to kill innovation in my organization? And the, the answer was very, very simple. Make it somebody's part-time job. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll never have to worry about innovation again. 
<laughs> and there, there was me thinking it was either the chief exec or the FD, but it's actually the person whose job it is, but on a part-time basis. So I'm still trying to get under the skin of, of sort of the whole sort of cultural issue around, around disruption. Because obviously, and I know, you know, some of the ideas that, that you and Din bring forward are just, yeah, you, you just go, absolutely makes sense. Yeah, that's an absolute must-do. But I know, you know, sometimes some of those things fly um, and, and 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 probably float for a bit, but others don't. And I'm just really keen to try and get to, to sort of nub of the issue really in, in around, you know, what, what actually stops people going, yeah, okay, I'm up for a bit of this. Is it is it the the fact that this ingrained culture within the sector of of not wanting to fail that you know we want to be compliant we want to sort of work within a, a regulated environment so there's a framework and I don't mean that in a critical way but that's that's the sort of nature of our world but, but actually what stops people going you know what this happens in my in my life outside work so actually I want to apply that in work what. What stops them? Because some of these people that you're meeting are the key decision makers who can make who can take that that chance and make that change. So, so you know, just try and help me understand it. And Steve as well. You know what? From what you've seen and what you've experienced, you know what stops people just sort of signing on the dotted line. Well, I mean, we learned quite early on. We we're very good at doing the inspiration, motivation sort of piece around that. But actually, that's just the beginning of the journey for this. And when you think where most people actually are. Most uh, most leaders uh, in an organization, most people in an organization are just trying to get through to the end of the day. So when we talk to them about actually working on, you know, that horizon, looking, you know, working on the business, not in the business, uh, it can be quite sort of uh, challenging because actually, you know, this is this is what I'm getting measured on. This is what my appraisal, this is what my bonus is sort of linked into. Um, so I think that's that's a challenge as well. I've talked a bit about the failure stuff, but it's also culturally, you know, what 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 is acceptable for people to, to do? Now I can tell you a couple of couple of stories around this. I mean, uh, we did a session with the guys from the Lego Innovation Lab, and a lot of people won't realise that you know, back in the back in the noughties, um, Lego got some consultants in who were basically saying, "Look, you're a hugely successful uh, business, but we want to grow." The consultants said, "Oh, you need to diversify. These trends are happening. Kids are not playing with plastic bricks anymore. They're doing video games. We're doing movies." So they went in. And the sponsored Harry Potter um, games, uh, Star Wars movies, all of these things. Um, and it nearly killed the business. And the reason why it nearly killed the business was, you know, during the years where there wasn't a big games release or there wasn't a big movie, basically nobody bought anything. Yeah. Um, and, and, it, and it nearly killed the business. They got to within one month of actually uh, the, the owners, the family owners of the business had to reach in the pockets to pay the wages before, mm. you know, they started that rebuild. And the, re the reason why they did the rebuild was they they built the wrong innovation model for their organization because they'd lost sight of what the purpose was. And their purpose was that small red brick that, um, you know, everybody is, you know, trodden on in stock and feet and yelled things like that. Um, but, you know, they forgot the site of around that. And so they rebuilt their, their business model around that red brick. So everything, everything is around us. So they still do the movies. But, you know, you look at where the most profitable areas are. It's getting adults or big kids like us to buy the Millennium Falcon for 750 quid or the Empire State Building uh, around that. But the one thing, when I, when I asked the guys who were responsible for this and what their early lessons were as they were rebuilding back, uh, the big mistakes they made were not building a village 
um, across the business. So they didn't involve the CFO uh, in the very, very early stages. And as soon as that came in and, oh, you're asking for money for something that's potentially going to fail, why would I want to take that risk? And, and I think, you know, that's a real key skill we've got to train people in is you've got to take people with you. You've got to have an executive sponsor. Um, you've got to have, you know, that, that resource. Um, if, if, if you want a good cultural story, um, I can quickly share one that, that I think really illustrates um, the, the cultural barriers that can stop any real change around it. It does contain some fruity language, so you might have to bleep this out, but it's a really, really good uh, story to illustrate it. So Brompton Bicycles, home of the, uh, the folding bicycle, the apple of folding bikes, heavily engineered, brilliant products. Business was coming under serious threat from Far East imports. The CEO, Will Butler Adams, knew he needed to do something to change um, uh, the business to become more innovative, but he also knew that culturally, this was an engineering company, everything they'd done was based on lean in terms of driving out cost of the business. So to actually go and spend any of the company money that could potentially fail was just not culturally accessible. And they kept saying, oh, well, actually, if only you had a small budget uh, to actually spend an experiment. Um, now, we started off, uh, he, he had a £5,000 budget to allow, so he got over that hurdle. I think the budget is now £100,000 that they've actually got. So it was a fund that was big enough to make a difference, but not big enough to cripple the business if they lost it. But he also knew culturally they weren't in a good position that if he gave it to the teams that they would be comfortable about losing this, this budget money. So he gave the, um, the, the, the fund a name. Uh, and he named it in particularly to say to people and send a message, it is okay if you lose this money as long as you learn from it. And he called it the Fuck It Fund. And the reason why he called it that was he wanted people, uh, to, he wanted the teams to understand that if you lost that money, fuck it, it's gone, as long as you've learned from this. And this has grown now from 5,000, as I said, up to a £100,000 budget. And culturally, that's what he needed to do in that organisation. Thanks, Ian. That, that, is a, that is a really sort of useful insight. I, I suppose I'm going to switch over to, to you, Steve, and particularly given some of what Ian's said there. Um, and, and as you know, and I know you've, you've, you've got an innovation team that, that work alongside you, Steve. So, you know, what, what could we do more of? And, and is there anything in particular where we, you know, we could, we could make better use of some of the digital solutions that we've got available to us to, to break down some of those barriers and prove the concept that, that Ian's talked about? Yeah, well, I think one of the, the immediate sort of observations really is a bit like what Ian was saying there is that, you know, I've got an innovation team that's attached to me and we, we started to look at that team, I think, across the whole business as being the source of innovation. And actually that in itself is a, is a problem because it means that people aren't thinking it's my job to think of new ways of doing things, whatever their job is across the across the business. It's that team over there that will do that. And of course, then if that team over there is thinking of, you know, weird and wonderful bits of tech to use or whatever then it's easy for for me the person who actually does that job every day to throw rocks at it because oh that'll never work. what do they know about they don't know anything over there so i think what i've tried to to start doing within uh, within my team is to think about innovation sort of being us coaching others to be innovative us helping others to be innovative uh, and to think about the digital things there i think we've got that kind of fear of consequences across um all the people because of all, all, the, all those things really that um that Ian was pointing out that, that you know the measures and things like that I think it's really interesting so I, I I worked on a project a while ago it's not in housing one um which was uh funded through national governments in it, through an innovation fund and one of the key metrics that they asked me about was how many users are we going to have 
And I come well, it's, it's an innovation. We don't, we don't know really until you start going. And, but that was that was the key driver. You know, how many people are you going to get using the service? And we think, well, before you've started, you know, before you've even designed what it is you're going to do, you, you start from a place where you, you've been measured in, in kind of the wrong way, really. So um, I think we've got um, lots of opportunities. We've got bags of uh, tools. There's lots of things that we're starting to do in terms of looking outside of the sector as well. Um, I'm very disappointed to find out that it's you don't just put teams in and that's it. You don't. Like I'm, I'm, oh, well, we did that last year, so <laughs> innovation done, tick done, move on. Let's let's do something else instead. Um, so, but I think that whole the, what we've experienced, I guess, over the last um, year uh, or so is is that we've got that capacity to change individually as well as kind of collectively. And uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll not be able to just kind of go back to the same old, same old ways of working. We have to find a way to kind of um, put aside our, our collective experiences and be really prepared to listen and, and learn about what's going on um, beyond our, our, our boundaries, I guess. So um, I'm not going to necessarily reveal particular um, tools or, or techniques or things that we're looking at. Um, I think there's loads, and I think you'll find that when you speak to other people across the whole of the sector, which is, you know, our, our podcast will reach those sorts of people, is that, you know, when we talk about drones or we talk about data or we talk about systems or things like that, chatbots, all that kind of stuff, lots and lots of people looking at those things. And so I don't, I don't think that's necessarily where we need to spend our focus because I think if people are thinking about what's available, looking outside and just starting to think about what's possible – then in a way we become magnets for attracting you know people or, or organizations to come and work with us uh, to come and show us things uh, and i think that's where it then becomes a question of well how do we make it easy to be able to work you know for those businesses to be able to work with us which is a bit like we, we touched on earlier really yeah okay cheers dave so we're entering the uh, the last nine minutes or so of the podcast so uh, regular listeners will know that as we get to uh, the last five minutes we do the quick fire round but before we get to that just a a couple of sort of quick follow-ups really I suppose probably same question to both of you really so you know from all the businesses that you you've worked with or you experience of as a customer who should housing be more like gosh um yeah good question I mean I did have an interesting debate with the CEO last week about you know what what can we possibly learn from Amazon um, because they're a hugely commercial company around this I will learn from anywhere um, and there's some great trends and technologies starting to emerge that basically I think any leaders need to keep an eye on, Nick. So I wouldn't necessarily say, um, you know, there's one sector we need to look at. I think that the, the big thing that housing organisation, housing leaders need to focus on, though, is getting the basics right. And how do you improve the basics? You know, that's ultimately what um, tenants and residents are after, a good repair service, easy to access. Make sure you're doing that well before you start looking and buying tech baubles for smart homes and IoT sensors and stuff like that. <laughs> tech baubles, love it. Love, love that phrase. How about you, Steve? Well, we've got some tech baubles. Yeah, we, we love a bit of tech baubles, don't we? So, uh, yeah, well, I think it's interesting. We talked about, you know, people like John Lewis earlier, for example. So them coming into housing, it's what they bring with them is that kind of that commitment, that brand. They've, they've got people who really love their products. They really love what John Lewis is about, regardless of what they're selling you that particular day. They, they just buy it because it's from John Lewis, because it's about service and experience. So I think we have to look at those sorts of organisations that, it's not necessarily about the, the specific product that they're offering at that moment in time. It's about what they stand for. And there's yeah. something about that, I think, that, that resonates when we, when we talk about 
Apple or, or Tesla, you know, Tesla making cars or batteries or spacecraft or whatever they're doing, it's not, it's a different product, but, but it's something that we buy into. So I think we should be um, trying to align ourselves more to that way of, you know, how do we get people on board with, with what we're about as an organisation is my view. Uh, interesting. Both of you touch on on culture there. That is, that is interesting. Um, it, it, this this podcast is the gift that keeps on giving, particularly for for those people who are kind enough to give up their their time to to contribute. So I'm going to give you uh, thirty seconds each on venting your spleen on your biggest frustration with the housing sector. So probably because I'll need to guillotine him, I'll go to Ian first. <laughs> thirty seconds starting now, right? Okay. My biggest frustration is we think we're in undisruptible because of the way that we've sort of uh, built this business model. Uh, it's not that long ago, during the Cameron Osborne era, they floated the idea we're going to nationalise housing associations. It was the one squeaky bum time I, when I was chatting to CEOs, I thought, oh, can they actually do this? They didn't do it because there's no votes in uh, nationalising charities. But don't use regulatory uh, burdens as a, as a barrier to innovation. Regulation is just a bar. Make sure you get to that bar. Make sure you meet everything that your regulator actually needs. But what you do beyond that is only limited by your ambition and I think that's uh you know my frustration that people actually don't realize you're in control of what you want to do wow great one love it and I've not had to guillotine you but Ian blimey um Steve same to you um well as as people who know me will know that I am I'm much more measured and calm generally and, and generally don't vent my spleen too much about about anything I'm I'm much more of a Gareth Southgate type, I suppose. <laughs> when we talk about the Orioles, so that's, that's much my my way my way of thinking. Sir, Sir Gareth, Steve, Sir Gareth, <laughs> soon to be Sir Gareth. Yeah. Um, so I think um, for me, I think there's something about um, diversity of kind of thoughts and opinions and backgrounds and experiences, and we talk about that in our sector a lot. But I and I, I think we're doing some things within Yorkshire housing, but I think bringing people and ideas into the sector from elsewhere. Um, is probably the one thing that that feels like we talk about it and it doesn't really happen. So I think there's something about a, a tendency to try and yeah, when we do bring people in, we just kind of plug them into how we do things now. Yeah. We we get them embedded with oh well this is how we do housing, therefore they have to do it in that kind of way. And I, I just think that if we're going to see any disruption come from outside uh, from from beyond the sector, they'll start with a blank sheet of paper. It'll be John Lewis with ten thousand homes in a car park or whatever they're planning to do. You know that's that's where it's going to come from. <laughs> 10,000 new homes in a car park. You heard it here first. That's one heck of a car park. Um, so we're in the quick fire round. We've got uh, four minutes left. So uh, I'm going to kick off with the first one, I suppose, really. So you can argue the last 12 months has been pretty, pretty disruptive, even by your standards in. You must be quite happy about the level of disruption. What are your predictions for the next 12 months ahead? I'm going to go to Steve first on this one. Right, okay. Well, uh, I think there's going to be a lot more debate, actually, around flexible working. I think particularly remote working. Uh, lots of businesses rely on people commuting and working in towns and city centres. So I think there's a big push to get people back to offices. But I, I genuinely think that some people will definitely leave their jobs for organisations that are able to offer that more flexible remote offer okay and for anybody listening who is contemplating a career move yorkshire housing are fully agile home working contract uh, offer so and we've even as in the process of selling our head office so you can't get much more disruptive than that in terms of agile working and i'm now going to go to the tuxedo clad ian wright for uh, his predictions uh, next 12 months even more uncertainty we're living in a, in a world global experiment nobody has the answer to this no consultancies no frameworks or anything like that we're all in this together so you're going to have to get used 
used to things not going according to plan and embrace that. Um, you're going to have to focus on how the work now gets done in a distributed organization. So how do you know how that team is feeling over there? Uh, if you don't have the systems in place, you're going to be in bother because you're not going to be able to, uh, to stop people toppling over before they do. Um, I think there will probably be even more tech bauble buying going on because people will look to technology as an answer. And what these tech companies are really, really good at is selling, the, the, I suppose, the benefits of going with some of those things. But beware because we are in a period of a complete absence of any strategy um, for whether it's any of the specific areas, whether it's a new tech IT strategy for a post-pandemic world, whether it's a smart home strategy, prop tech, um, another massive area uh, around that as well. But I suppose my final thing to sort of uh, finish on will be, you know, remember critics build nothing. Um, so uh, that, that was, uh, you know, something I sort of learned from somebody who I, I respect. And I think, uh, you know, have a go at things. Talk minus action equals nothing, and it always will. Oh, great one. Great one. I can feel that coming in my summary at the end. So next one, biggest single learning point you've taken from the last 12 months or 16 months or whatever period you want to put on, on the pandemic. But uh, Ian, what, what have you taken most from? Uh, something that we learned as a business early on, as, as you said in the introduction, we're a startup, we're just out of the startup phase, we're now into sort of the scale up and when um, COVID hit, our immediate response was, oh no, the world's going to crash in, you know, the business is going to go under. Uh, and for the first two weeks, we were mourning about actually what we can no longer do. We can't do this, we can't do study visits, we can't what have you. Uh, after two weeks, we, we, we flipped our mindset around and said, actually, stop focusing on what you can no longer do and focus on what you still can do and i i think that's been a real driver for our um i suppose business in terms of actually we can still do a lot of stuff and in this digital world we can actually do a lot more in some respects oh great one thank you steve same to you uh, not a dissimilar answer really i suppose is that um is it everybody can learn you can learn new stuff in a crisis there's massive opportunities there so I think as a business, we all flipped to you know video conferencing, whether that's Teams or Zoom or whatever we're using. But also individuals were able to do that. So you know Zoom with Granny and WhatsApp groups and all that sort of thing for people that hadn't really embraced it before because they hadn't needed to. So I think there's something there that uh, that says that you know we've all had to change with we've all had to deal with kind of change and disruption at short notice. And I think that's going to continue. We just have to be a bit more resilient. So I'm I'm kind of optimistic that individuals and organisations are much better placed than ever to do things differently, to be more tolerant tolerant to those sort of set, setbacks that they're going to have perhaps a bit more resilient too um we, you know, we can do things differently we've proved that so uh, so that's that's what i want to try and build on really well that's a that's a great uh, positive statement from you both to end on so thanks very much just to try and wrap things up then i think a bit of a marker laid down by in that we're a 28 billion uh, 30 percent margin sector that's uh, ripe for for change so if we don't uh, disrupt and innovate and change then Others probably will give us the burning platform we've been all hankering after. Secondly, there's a culture that's needed, and, and he gave us the example of, of Brompton Bicycles and, and their FI fund, as I now refer to it. Some, some key takeaways for me, part-time innovators kill innovation. So if you have got a part-time innovation role, uh, Ian's coming for you in the dead of night. And uh, also that we're all only limited by our ambition. Critics build nothing and focus on what 
on what you can do, not what you can't, especially in an increasingly digital world. What a great way to, to wrap things up. Massive thank you to my best dressed guest ever, Ian Wright in his tuxedo, and also to Steve Thorby Coy. The next episode is the future of homes, part one, homes of the 1950s or 2020s. More information on that will follow. You can also find all our other episodes wherever you get your usual podcasts. But that's it. That's a wrap for episode three. Thanks very much for listening. Take care and uh, see you very soon.